All right, so hope you guys are enjoying the warmer weather. It continues to warm up. I know this morning is a little colder than it has been, but at least the sun's shining and it's dry for most of us. And we, you know, some of you might still have water in basements or still recovering from that. And, if, and speaking on that, if you need help with uh, anything in that regards, let the church know. Uh, let the office know um, how we can come along, whether it's financial or just uh, some manual labor. If you need some working hands to help you um, recover, if you had flood in the basements or any kind of water damage, please let us, ne- let us know. Anytime you're um, in need, um, please don't hold, hold that back. So today we're continuing our four-week break from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, so far we have covered a financial stewardship, uh, the theology of worship, and next week we're going to discuss some common verses uh, that people use um, out of context or uh, they just misuse them. But today, in line with the Gideon International Ministry, we are going to talk about Scripture, uh, specifically the authority of Scripture and due to its authority, its inherent power that it possesses. And then we are going to wrestle with the question of whether or not we can actually trust the Scriptures that we have today in our English Bibles. Now, this is a big topic, and I I pray that I did well to pull from not all the verses in Scripture on Scripture because there's a plethora of them. Um, And so, hopefully, I I pulled enough for you. And and if you were to Google this or do a study on this, you will find many verses um, that will speak to this topic. But before we begin, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer to seek his wisdom. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your truth that is before us. Just ask that you speak to each and every one of us through your spirit and that we will humble ourselves before you, recognizing your authority, your truth, seeking to grow in this truth and wisdom that is in your word, Father. Speak to us. May we glorify you as we respond humbly and obediently to your teaching. We ask this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So when we talk about scripture being authoritative, where do we begin? Well, as believers and as an EFCA church, an Evangelical Free Church of America, uh, we we believe this statement. Uh, We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors, as the verbally inspired word of God. The Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Again, that comes from our denominational statement of faith. And for most believers who uh, believe scripture, that's what we believe. We believe the word of God to be authoritative, to be inerrant, and to be invaluable, infallible. So why do we consider, consider it to be authoritative, though? Let's just kind of get to the basics here. Well, when we f- refer it to as the word of God, there's an inherent sense of authority there, right? It's the word, the word of God. It's the teaching, the reasoning of God. And when we talk about God, if God spoke it, even if you don't know who God is, there's a sense of authority there. God's a big person, a big being. So there's a certain level of authority there at at the very least. But why do we believe this word to be that of God? And ultimately, this comes down to our faith because we 
cling to who Jesus Christ is. We believe Jesus Christ to be the risen son of God. And thus, since we believe that the tomb is empty, that he has been risen, we embrace his teachings. And his teachings include scripture being the word of God. So why do we refer to it as the word of God? Well, scripture, it is understood to be inspired, though it was written by the hands of men. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul tells us all scripture is breathed out, or some versions put it, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But what's meant by breathed out? What's meant by inspired? B.B. Warfield defines it as this, the supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. Or more simply, as Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, it means that the writer has been controlled by the Holy Spirit of God in such a way that he cannot be guilty of error in what he writes. Now, when we use the terms inerrant and infallibility, when we speak of inerrant, we mean that the original manuscript, the original writing itself, was without error. And when we speak of infallibility or being infallible, we're saying that the original manuscript or the autographa was without fault when it was originally written. We also consider it to be the word of God because in the Old Testament, specifically the Old Testament, we have close to 4,000 instances of where the prophets or Moses write, the Lord said, the Lord spoke, the word of the Lord came to me, or in a vision, so forth. We have thousands of instances of the Lord directly speaking to or revealing something to the author. But how can we trust that? How can we trust the Old Testament? Again, we have to go to Jesus. Jesus, in a way, is the binding of the Bible. He's what holds it all together. So let's look at what Jesus taught about the Old Testament. And if you've been following along the Gospel of Matthew in our series, I'm constantly harping on how Jesus teaches the Old Testament, how he defends the Old Testament. In in Matthew 4, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy three times. Matthew 22, 41, 44, Jesus teaches on how the Spirit spoke through David. That's a good example of inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 12, 40, Jesus references Jonah. Luke 24, 27, Jesus uses all of the Old Testament to show how it points to the promised Messiah. And then we have scripture throughout New Testament elsewhere. It should be listed up there, and there are many more beyond that. And remember, Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament, not to abolish it or to do away with it, but to fulfill it. And as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is useful for teaching, correcting, reproof, and training in righteousness. But how does this pertain to the New Testament? We have to be careful with the New Testament not to love our red letters more than the black letters. And if you don't know what I mean by red letters, some Bible versions have the words of Jesus in red. So those are the red letters. When Jesus isn't speaking directly, you go back to the standard black. So we got to be careful not to love our red letters more than our black letters, as if the red letters have more authority than the black ones. All of Scripture is the word of Christ. 
John 16, 12, 15, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Paul then gives us an example of this actually happening. In Galatians 1, 11 through 12, Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we see more of this in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles in the New Testament. And we actually see this uh, in John, talking about like in John 2, if you're in part of the life groups and going through the study of uh, the gospel of John, you notice that in John 2, at the end of the chapter, uh, John writes, and the apostles didn't realize that Jesus was talking about this until after he was risen from the dead. So we see the inspiration of the Holy Spirit revealing the things and more of the teaching of Jesus after Jesus was risen and after he ascended. So we see Jesus pointing us to both the old and the new, why both the old and the new point to Jesus. Now we have to be careful, again, not to take Jesus to be more authoritative than Scripture or Scripture more authoritative than Jesus as if these are are two things that need to be separated. It's more of a both-and situation, not an either-or. Again, let us not love the red letters more than the black. John 1, 1 and 2 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And who is John talking about here in John 1? Jesus. Revelation nineteen thirteen. John again writes, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is the Son of God, the Son of Man. This is Jesus Christ. Kevin DeYoung, I think, puts it very well, much more than how I can articulate it. So I just took a whole paragraph from his book, Taking God at His Word. And he writes, God's gracious self-disclosure comes to us through the Word made flesh and by the inscripturated Word of God. These two modes of revelation reveal to us one God, one truth, one way, and one coherent set of promises threats, and commands to live by. We must not seek to know the word who is divine apart from the divine words of the Bible, and we ought not read the words of the Bible without an eye to the word incarnate. When it comes to seeing God and his truth in Christ and in Holy Scripture, one is not more reliable, more trustworthy, or more relevant than the other. Scripture, because it is the breathed out word of God, possesses the same authority as the God-man Jesus Christ. Christ. So we have to be careful when we talk about the teachings of Scripture. We'll be like, well, Jesus says this, and we take the red letters with more authority than what we might read in the letter from Paul. The thing of it is, nothing that Paul teaches contradicts anything that Jesus teaches. Scripture affirms itself. It's one of the crazy things about Scripture that starting from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation, it affirms itself. It's, It's in part, that's what plays into its role of authority. It's not, the, it's not 
from whom the message comes from necessarily that affirms the authority, but it's the message itself. It affirms itself over time, through time, through a plethora of different people, different cultures, all pointing to Christ, and Christ points to all of it. So we must look at the pages of the book that we have in our hands or on our phones and recognize that the weight of authority is the same from page one to the final page. Now, recognizing this authority of Scripture, we then must recognize its power. Of course, the definition of authority includes some level of power inherent within itself. But when we speak of the Word of God, what power are we exactly talking about? What ability actually exists within the Word of God? I think it's clear to most of us that when we read Scripture, it's not going to tell us how to change the oil, oil in our car or how to perform heart surgery. It doesn't have that kind of ability. But what is it able to do beyond telling us who God is? Well, Paul succinctly tells us in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for a salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's pretty much it. It has the power to save. And that's a significant thing. That's no, that's no small amount of power. For within the word of God, or more accurately, the word of God itself, it is the good news. When we speak of the gospel, the gospel is not just Jesus resurrected on the cross. It is that. That's the culmination of it, absolutely. But the gospel starts in John 1.1. 1, 1. I mean, excuse me, Gen- well, it does kind of start in John 1.1. 1, 1. But ultimately, it starts in Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created That's good news, that the God, the only being that exists, just because he exists, decided to create, because that's who he is. That's the beginning of the good news. And it ends with the culmination that the old things have passed, and the the new heaven and new earth exist, and that he's restoring things, redeeming things. The good news, the gospel, is the entire word of God. It's not a subsection of it. It's, It's all of it. That's why all of Scripture is useful for training and teaching and righteousness and correcting and reproof. And the fact that it is the good news, that it does have the power to save, when we think of that power, it's the power that causes the dead to live, the blind to see, and every one of us in this room who has experienced this conversion, this experience of being born again, recognizes the power that it was that before you had no idea. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit took hold of your heart and gave you a new heart, like from Ezekiel, like that testimony that we just heard, gave you a new heart that you're like, wow, only God, only God could do this. First Peter one twenty three, Peter writes about this. He says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? Through the living and abiding word of God. It's through the word of God that we are saved. But wait, there's more. It's not just for the power of salvation uh, of God, that that the word of God is is useful. Um, Hebrews 4.12, the author writes, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of their hearts. Scripture, the Word of God, has the ability to reveal things about yourself 
that you would not know otherwise and to reveal things about other people that you would not know otherwise. It helps us in our process of being made more righteous before God in our sanctification process. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 5 tells us that the the wife is, is cleansed, is sanctified by the husband when the husband uses the word of God and over her and washes her in it. The word of God has the ability to sanctify us in our sins and to make us righteous. And again, go back to 2 Timothy 3.16. It's good for training and, and equipping. The book of Leviticus is good for training and equipping us to do the good work of God. It's the word of God that equips us for ministry. It's the word of God that allows us to be a bright light within our communities. And if you want more, and we could go on and on about what scripture, how scripture is useful for us as believers, read Psalm 119. Or read the book of Deuteronomy, which is filled with verses of the value of knowing God's word. Anytime we keep his command and statutes and the value and the blessings that come with that. So how does this work? The word of God has the power to save. How does this work? Well, clearly by the power of the Spirit. But by what means, though? Paul poses this question in Romans ten fourteen. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And notice, you know, Len actually quoted ten thirteen, which is kind of a good setup about how uh, the person, about how all they have to do is, is profess and call on the name of Jesus. But how then will they call on him, that's Jesus, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Well, clearly someone has to share the word of God with them. The word of God must be presented to the non-believer in order for them to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on in verse 15 saying, how are they to preach unless they are sent? And he answers, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We support this. We do this. We partake in this blessing when we support ministries like the Gideons who work to get the word of God distributed to places where the word of God might otherwise not be. And I personally relate to this experience because I came to Christ just by reading scripture. I didn't have anyone lead me to Christ. I didn't have anyone evangelize me. Nothing. It was just the word of God, me in my room, and one afternoon the Holy Spirit turning light switch on saying, see? And me going, oh, it makes sense. But that was by me reading the word of God. So I personally relate to the fact that the power of salvation exists in the word of God, not some seven-step evangelistic program to get you to believe. It's the word of God. Another example of how we support this is when we invite people to come to church to hear the public reading of scripture, to hear the proclamation of the word of God itself. This is why if I ever come up here and I preach a sermon, I never reference scripture that's the day you fire me because i'm not doing my job the bible should always be proclaimed in church in multiple ways always because it's powerful we do this we share the word of god when we share what we know about the word of god when we invite them for coffee when we invite them to over when we go for a long run with them, or whatever it is, we go on a hike, we share the word of God and how we interact with the world and we speak with truth and confidence in what we believe to be true. 
Now, you might think you don't know enough or understand Scripture well enough to speak about it or to share it with others in your lives. If you are saved, you know enough. Because what you know, or I should say who you know, is the important part, and that's Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, you know the Word of God. You know him in the flesh. That's Jesus Christ. So you do know enough to talk to somebody about the Word because you yourself have experienced it, and you know how it saves and redeems a person. Scripture itself is made to be understood by all. So don't be intimidated by it, thinking that you can't understand it. Read it. Just read it. Psalm 119, 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Psalm 19, 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, this doesn't mean that all of Scripture is clear in its understanding and purpose. There are some difficult parts, and even Peter himself admits this in 2 Peter 3, 15, 16, when he's talking about some of the teachings of Paul. Peter writes, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter right there, and it's, it's interesting that it's Peter saying that some of Paul's teachings are hard to understand because he himself was rebuked by P, uh, Paul at one point. So I think Peter kind of has a personal experience in understanding some of Paul's teachings. Some of it's hard. Some of it's hard to understand because we're convicted in our sin and we struggle to embrace that new teaching. And some of it's just hard to understand what does this look like? What does he mean by this? Or it's prophetic, and we're not quite sure how to view it or understand it. And Peter's saying, just be patient, but be careful in it. And, in, and don't go along with the ignorance and those who twist Scripture for their own gain and their own benefits. Therefore, when we do go to Scripture, go to Scripture in prayer. You have to lean on the Spirit, ask the Spirit to illuminate to you the teachings of Scripture, not just for what it plainly, plainly says. I mean, anyone can read the Bible and get a lot out of just the plain language of it, but to really know it intimately and see how it points to Christ and how that illuminates the sin in your life and how that changes your life. Paul, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, 12, tells us, as it is written, And he's quoting Isaiah here, I believe. What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. See, the Spirit does not only search your heart, but the Spirit is searching the depths of God for your own sanctification, for your own purpose, for your well-being, for the purposes of glorifying God. He goes on and says, For who knows a person's thoughts? except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God, except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. 
But not only should we rely on the Spirit, this isn't like we wait around for revelation to come to us, but we are called to be disciplined in the studying of scriptures. Paul in 2 Timothy 2.15 writes, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And next week, we're going to look at some verses that because people don't rightly handle the word of truth, take these verses out of context. And we'll talk about how do we know if a verse is being used appropriately or not. We will go over some of the uh, studies, techniques, the hermeneutic, how we look at scripture and understand it. We will go over that so that um, all of us are well-equipped and properly handling the word of truth. But in the meantime, let me just give you some tips when it comes to understanding Scripture and knowing Scripture and being able to use it effectively in your life. Read. Just read. And I would encourage you to read as many chapters as you can in a sitting. When you read a fiction book or anything else, most of the time you don't just like, it's 15 minutes, I'm going to read it, or three chapters, that's it. You, you sit you, and read, and you read Maybe you just sit for an afternoon or maybe you have an hour and you read for that whole hour. Do the same thing in Scripture. Just read. And don't focus on necessarily understanding every little thing that comes your way. Over time, it will come together like a puzzle as you go through those pieces over and over and you're constantly looking at the big picture and constantly looking at those pieces before then you have the puzzle. Just read it. It will explain itself over time. I would, perhaps you read a version without chapters and verses. They have these uh, reader's versions out there. Like I think the ESV Crossway produces one where you just have the books and the letters. No chapters, no subsections to kind of throw you off or give you an excuse to stop reading. It's just, it's written without the divisions as it was originally. And I think you'll be surprised at how you understand a book or a letter when you read it in its entirety. The big picture flows out more smoothly, uh, things in the gospel, the themes, they, they tend to stand out more when you ignore those subsections. Chapters weren't added until 1250 A.D. Verses for the New Testament weren't added until 1551. Um, and then the entire Bible wasn't sliced and diced until the Geneva Bible in 1560. Before then, you just had to know your scripture. You just had to know where to look, which is not a bad thing to know. And the great thing about reading the Bible over and over again is you will always see and discover new things. I've read it I don't know how many times, and every time I go through it, there's something new that's sticking out. There's just something new, a little detail here, a little piece there. It will always be like it's new and fresh. Now, on top of reading, I would encourage you to do a study. I would not encourage you to do a study in place of reading. I would say it's much better to read. Get that base mileage down. Just read, get that information in you. Because if you do just a study, a study takes time. You can study a book and and all you do an entire year is just one book. You're not getting the word of God in you. You need the whole scripture, all of it. Just read it. And then on top of it, do a study. Make reading the priority. When you do a study, Do it preferably in a group. Every heretic has a verse. And if we're not careful to have a community of believers to keep us grounded in how to properly read scripture, 
That's how we take verses out of context because it's easy. I've done this myself, and, it's, it's, and I still have to guard myself, not to lean on my own understanding, but to trust in the teaching of Scripture, uh, history of the church, and my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, like the elders and others, to keep me grounded in how I understand the Word of God because the heart is wickedly uh, deceptive, and if I'm not careful, I will read my own meaning into the text. So do it in community, and it will help keep you accountable. So scripture is authoritative. It has power. But can we trust what we have today? Can we trust the English copies, the English versions that we have today? After all, it was written in a different language, and then it was copied again, and it was copied again over and over, over the past couple millennia. So can we trust it? Well, let's look at what we are working with today. In regards to the New Testament, there are over 5,600 Greek manuscripts alone that we either have full texts of or portions of texts of Scripture. And we say Greek because Greek was the language of the land. Koine Greek is what they call it, common Greek, of the first and second century. So most of the original letters were written in this language. Um, the oldest manuscript piece dates back to at least 130 A.D., possibly earlier, and there are other manuscripts awaiting uh, peer review uh, that could potentially date them into the first century. Now, for comparison, should be up there. Yeah, we only have 650 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, which is written around 800 B.C. We have 55 of Josephus' works, which was written in 75-95 A.D., now, we, we do Josephus because he was a famous historian, which a lot of secular historians, they, they read his work and like, that's true. What he wrote down is, is, is accurate. But yet we have so many more manuscripts of the New Testament, but people still call in a question, well, how can we know that's what they really wrote? And note another thing right here, the um, span of years between the composition and oldest copy. That's some significant difference there between Plato, Aristotle, Homer's 500-year difference. And with the New Testament, we have a 50-year max difference there. That's significant. But you might be thinking, okay, fine. Between the original and copy that we have, it's 50 years. But how do we know all the copies since then are legit? Well, because we have many sources, not just one. Again, over 5,600 manuscripts. And they're not just from one area. They're geographically spread out. And when we look at these manuscripts and we compare them side by side, oh, they match. They say the same thing. This isn't like the telephone game. In the telephone game, you have one source, one line of communication, and that's it. You don't have all these other options from all these other areas to which you can compare and contrast. The scribes here also, they were meticulous in the copying. It was a holy work. They were able to double-check and recheck. They made corrections as necessary. Some of these manuscripts, in the margins, you see the corrections that they're making. And if you look at the original manuscripts, you can, well, not the original, but if you look at the copies of the manuscripts that we have, you can see how mistakes can be made. Duplication of the same name, uh, numbers being misplaced, because when you look at the Greek, all in those big capital letters, and you're just looking at line after line, I can see, I can see how a scribe could get mixed up as to where they are. Most of the errors that are found now are related to numbers, names, locations. Uh, For example, if if I say um, I want to go to New Amsterdam, uh, New York, what city am I talking about? I'm using an old name. 
New York City, absolutely, right? So sometimes it's names like that. It's the same location, just either an older name or a newer name. Um, place, those are like just an example of some of the errors that we have. But nothing that pertains to the core doctrines of our faith. Nothing that says Jesus was married and had three kids and a dog. Nothing like that. It's all accurate. It all, nothing challenges what we believe. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have some debatable passages as to whether these passages were original or not. Uh, Mark 16, 9, 20 is a popular one because if you end Mark 16 at verse 8, it ends kind of awkward, you know, and, and, and they were afraid. Is that how it's supposed to end? But some say, well, 9, 20 doesn't sound like the rest of Mark, so that's debated. John 7, 53, 8, 11, that's debated to be original. But again, there's nothing in these texts that when you look at it and you compare it to Scripture, you go, well, it sounds like Scripture. It sounds like the Word of God. No reason to really say it's not Scripture and throw it out. So we don't have conflicts with doctrine or other portions of Scripture. Now, when we look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is based off of what we call the Masoretic Text, which was compiled in 600-800 A.D. All right? So this is actually after a lot of the Greek New Testament manuscripts, which is kind of interesting to think about it. But then again, we have the Septuagint manuscripts, which were 3rd B.C. and 2nd B.C. centuries, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were read in 150 B.C. to 70 A.D. So the Old Testament in our Bibles is primarily based off the Masoretic text. And in most Bible versions today, if there is a difference between the Masoretic text, um, abbreviated MT, or the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, it will tell you. But those differences, again, this is cool because we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, first century, right? We've taken parts of the Dead Sea Scrolls, compared them to the Masoretic text 600 to 800 years later. Think about it, 600 to 800 year time span. Compare these two documents and go, they say the same thing. The only thing that's different is maybe spellings of, of certain words and numbers, population numbers, and um, maybe perhaps more popularly, the height of Goliath, which I think is incredibly interesting. Because in the Masoretic text, Goliath is described as being nine feet, six inches. That's a tall dude. But in the Septuagint and Dead Sea Scrolls, he's six six. That's a three foot difference there. But think about it this way. I mean, if you've been watching uh, March Madness, you saw the tall guy for UCF, Taco Fell, I think that's the name. He's like seven six, right? He's a tall dude, but he doesn't move all that fast. And most guys, historically speaking, who grow to be that height or more, they're just, I mean, they're tall, but they're not very quick. And it, usually they're that tall because they have too much growth hormone being produced in them, and they have other hormonal issues that make them tired and, and so forth. So you might look at 9'6", that's imposing, but 6'6", you know, like LeBron James built quick, carrying heavy war equipment. To me, I would be more fearful of that. But again, 6696, does it change the story of Goliath? No. Does it change what does it impact our understanding of David and what happened there? No. David was 5'2. 6696, at that point, it doesn't matter. He's 5'2. That's a that's a short dude, right? I'm 6'2, so I mean even my height to David would be I mean, if you have a 5'2 boxer going up against a 6'2 boxer, you're probably going to put money on the 6'2 guy, right? So th- th- this is, even though it's a, it's, it's a unique difference, it's not one that's like, that's it, I'm done believing Scripture. If you do that, you have a bigger issue with Jesus than you do with 
somebody's height. Now, I hope going through that, we have more trust in the transmission process, recognizing that the teachings of who Jesus is, who God is, what the kingdom is, and what we have before us is reliable. But why do we have so many English versions? Because we, we have a lot. I preach from the ESV. I personally read from the Net Bible, the New English Translation Bible. Some of you have, I think, our Pew Bibles or the NIV, the 2011 version, I think. And you got the 1984 version of the NIV still laying around. you got the NASB, and we have the uh, King James, the New King James, the RSV, the NRSV, the New Living, the Amplified. All kinds of versions out there. But why? Well, because idioms, figures of speech, they change over time. And especially in America, especially the English language, different sayings have different meanings. Even words can have, in New England, wicked's not a bad thing. Wicked is awesome. Something can be wicked awesome, right? That's just how we are in New England. In other places, wicked is evil. Not New England, it's just, it's awesome, it's wicked. But that's just an idiom. So it's, it's just one of those examples. A book, if you are wondering about this and you want to dive into this, is called One Bible, Many Versions. Are All Translations Created Equal? By David Brun. Now, David, it should be up there. Yeah, I have it somewhere in my office once I find it. You can borrow it. Um, he translated for the New Tribes Mission the entire New Testament um, in a new language um, in Papua New Guinea because they have like over 100 languages there. And he, and he took him about 20-something years to translate uh, the entire New Testament, just the New Testament, in this language. And based off of that experience, he wrote this book. And he just, he really just harps on, like, we can understand the flaring of the nostrils may be signifying anger. But in another culture, it can mean, I love you. And I, you know, I want to get with you kind of thing. So when we translate scripture, we have to be careful not to focus on the word-for-word translation, but to translate the actual meaning. What did the original author mean, and how do we get that to say that in our language today? It's a humbling read. So which, tr- which version is the best version for you to read? Which one do I recommend? The one that you're going to read. The one that you find easiest to read. The one that has the best readability for you. Again, if you are doing a study, it would be wise to look at several versions anyway when you're studying a passage and not just one. It will give you insight, just a change in the voice, uh, whether it's passive or active, can be significant. Um, and to clarify, the message, though popular, I would not consider that to be a version of Scripture. I would not even consider the message to be Scripture. It's a commentary at best. It's just too paraphrased, too brought out to really be Scripture. It's really Eugene Peterson's view on his, his opinion on that scripture passage. So while it might be good to read, I would not use that as your primary reading Bible. I personally, again, I use the Net Bible, and I use it with the notes because it's got study notes, uh, textual criticism notes, and translator notes. So it's, it's got like commentary that comes with it. So now what? Going we covered a lot of ground today on a, on a big topic. So, so now, what? Knowing that Scripture is authoritative, powerful, that it's trustworthy with what we have before us, what do you do now? Well, you master it. It's in your language. There are people out there who don't have it in their language. There are people out there who, if they get a copy in the language, they can be sentenced to death, 
They could be tortured over it. And the thing of it is, they don't avoid Scripture because of that. They're willing to be tortured just so that they can have a part of the book of Matthew. And yet here we have it. Here, I, I would give this free to any of you. If you're like, I don't have a Bible, you can have this one. Because Bibles are everywhere in America. I'll go to a hotel and I'll take a Gideon Bible if I have to. That's how spoiled we are. So we are without excuse. So we should, all of us, should be masters of understanding Scripture in our own language. And in that process, allowing it to master you. That's the key there. The difference between an unbelieving and a believing Bible scholar is the believer allows Scripture to teach them, to lead them, to mold them. They submit themselves to the teachings of Scripture. You want to know the secrets to life? Read your Bible. You want to know how to make disciples or what the church is about and how it should function or even what I should preach up here? Read your Bible. You want to have confidence when death comes knocking on your doorsteps, when that last breath and you're struggling to breathe as your heart seizes? Read your Bible. You want to have confidence when your believing spouse passes away that you will see them again? Read your Bible and be obedient to it. You want to hear God speaking into your life audibly with a voice? Read your Bible aloud. But most importantly, you want to know Christ. You want to have assurance of your forgiveness, of your own salvation. Read your Bible. God speaks. Many people who complain about not seeing God or knowing God or God doing enough, well, because they're not listening. They're not listening to the very word that God has given us through his son, through the prophets, and through the apostles. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for us being able to live in America to where we can possess this book. We can walk around and not be put in prison. We thank you that you have allowed us to have this security, to have this safety in this country, Father, but I ask that you will move us to be responsible in that, recognizing what a privilege this is and how our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world, there are so many who daily, the whole day is geared towards how do I get to know more of you and they don't have this and they would do anything to have just a page torn out of this book help us honor them by going to you daily by reading from what you have given us by what you have decided to how to reveal yourself and, and with the things that we ought to know and how we should live our life Help us go to your word. Help us find delight in it. Help us taste that sweetness, that, that wonderful joy that is to be found in your truth. Let our lives be marked with it, overflowing with it, Father. There's so much junk out there that we expose ourselves to. Help us turn to you. Help us say no to that. Deny our, our our selfish desires, our selfish pleasures, Father, and, and make your word a priority in our lives, in our families, and in our relationships, Father. Help, help Community Church to keep your word as 
our focus, our cornerstone on, on, on your son, Jesus. Help us keep proclaiming this. Help us stay faithful to it. Help us continue to um, just cling to its authority, Father, especially in a culture that is continually growing hostile towards it and, and refuses to believe it, Father. Help us stay strong and faithful to your teaching. For your word will never go away. The earth and sun will pass, but your word will forever remain. And we ask that you bless us in this endeavor. Give us energy. When we wake up in the morning, Father, give us, help us shape our lives, prioritize our schedules to make time for your word. And give us that passion. Reward us, Father, when we go to you. Help us understand that sometimes we're not going to feel like it. But when we do go to you, Father, in your word, reward us with the Spirit. Fill us with the Spirit. Convict us of our sins. Help us become more like your son. Help us know, help us enjoy that abundant life that your son has promised those who call on him, who go to him, who abide in him by knowing his word. I ask that you continue to be the Gideon ministry and all those who desire to see your word shared and proclaimed throughout the country, uh, throughout the world, Father, those especially who take it to the dark places of the world, those taken to hostile places, Father, be with them, guide them, bless them. Encourage them, comfort them. Let them know that we are praying for them, that we are thinking of them. And help us live lives that not just only glorify you, Father, but honor them. We thank you again. can never thank you enough that you, the great I am, has decided to speak to us. Let us listen. Let us love you. Walk with us. Be patient with us. Forgive us for our negligence. And help us continue to glorify you in all that we do, Father. We ask this by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name and the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, at this time, we are going to, um, worship team is going to come up, uh, lead us in one more song, and we are going to pass uh, the baskets around for um, an offering to support the um, Gideon um, ministry.